Our reading for this morning is found in Ruth chapter 2, and we'll be reading the entire chapter. There was a relative of Naomi's husband, a man of great wealth of the family of Elimelech. His name was Boaz. So Ruth, the Moabitess, said to Naomi, please let me go to the field and glean heads of grain after him in whose sight I may find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. Then she left and went and gleaned in the field of, after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. Now behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered him, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his servant, who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? So the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered and said, It is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. And she said, Please let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. So she came and has continued from morning until now, though she rested a little in the house. Then Boaz said to Ruth, You will listen, my daughter, will you not? Do not go to glean in another field, nor go, nor go from here, but stay close by my young women. Let your eyes be on the field which they reap, and go after them. Have I not commanded the young men to not touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink from what the young men have drawn. So she fell on her face, bowed down to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should, you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? And Boaz answered and said to her, it has been fully reported to me all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, and how you have left your father and your mother and the land of your birth, and have come to a people whom you did not know before. The Lord repay your work, and a full reward will be given to you by the Lord God of Israel, under whose wings you have come for refuge. Then she said, Let me find favor in your sight, my Lord, for you have comforted me, and have spoken kindly to your maidservant though I am not like your, one of your maidservants. Now Boaz said to her at mealtime, Come here and eat of the bread and dip your piece of bread in the vinegar. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed parched grain to her, and she ate and was satisfied and kept some back. And when she rose to glean, Boaz commanded his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not repro reproach her. Also, let grain from the bundles fall purposely for her, Leave it that she may glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening, and beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. Then she took it up and went into the city, and her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. So she brought it out and gave to her what she had kept back after she had been satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where have you gleaned today, and where did you work? Blessed be the one who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law, with whom, she, with whom she had worked, and said, The man's name who, with whom I work today is Boaz. Then Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, Blessed be he of the Lord, who has not forsaken his kindness to the living and to the dead. And Naomi said to her, This man is a relative of ours, one of our close relatives. Ruth the Moabitess said, He also said to me, You shall stay close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to her daughter, to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with this young woman, with his young women, and that the people do not meet you in any other field. So she stayed close by the young women of Boaz, and to glean until the end of the barley harvest and wheat harvest, 
and she dwelt with her mother-in-law. Well, good morning. Are you glad to be here today? I'm glad. I'm glad we had the euphonium guy with us as well. It was nice, Mike. And uh, the song is very appropriate. Naomi and Ruth especially found that uh, she now belonged to Jesus, right? In any church, there are basically two kinds of Christians. There are those who've been following God for as long as they can remember, from childhood, maybe raised as Christians. They are the lifers. And there are those who have spent a portion of their lives uh, as a pagan before following God. I belong to the latter class. Sometimes we are referred to as converts, although Scripture never uses that word. Um, we have not experienced conversion so much as we have experienced resurrection. As Paul writes, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit. Before we are in Christ, we're dead. Dead people walking. We might be able to fog a mirror and we might look to people around us as if we are very much alive, but the scripture says we're dead until Christ works his resurrection power in us. Only God's power can do that, raise dead people. And every time he does it, it's a miracle. It's life from the dead. But the funny thing is, Although it's God's power that does the miracle, he uses people to make it happen. Author Carolyn James says, and listen to this, God's preferred method of saving lost people is to work through us. His resurrection power is at work through powerless people to bring dead souls to life. He always works this way. Even though the process of coming to Christ might be lengthy, most of us who are members of the pagan class uh, can remember the event when we moved from death to life, when we chose to say yes to God. For me, it was a quiet summer evening when George Dutton, who had spent many weeks studying the Bible with me, invited me to choose Jesus, and I did. It was the moment I crossed the line of faith and became an adopted son of God. Last week, we listened as a Moabite woman named Ruth, standing on a dry, dusty road, crossed the line of faith from death to life and became an adopted daughter of Yahweh, Israel's God, his covenant, their covenant-keeping God. We heard her magnificent statement of commitment made not only to Naomi, not only to Naomi's people, but to God. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. Somewhere in Bethlehem, 
lost to the centuries but known to God, there is a grave with the bones of two women in it. Those of Naomi, those of Ruth. Ruth's commitment was one that transcended even death, as will be ours, because God is faithful. And then, because God has never relinquished his purpose for the human race, his original intent for human beings to partner together with him to rule over creation so that it might flourish, he enlists us, whether we are lifers or converts. He deploys us for kingdom work, partnering with us to pour his love through us to the world so that it might flourish. His resurrection power goes to work through, the, through powerless people like us to bring dead souls to life. And we'll see how that happens now in the second chapter of Ruth. This is our third week together in the Bible book of Ruth. You will remember that I'm recommending the book Finding God in the Margins by Carolyn Custis James. I am indebted to her for opening my eyes to the deeper meaning of this short Old Testament book. And I hope that I can pass on to you some of what I've learned and that I can whet your appetite to get a copy for yourself. We left Ruth and Naomi on the road from Moab to Bethlehem last week. When they both gathered their bundles and resumed their journey, they carried with them their beliefs about God forged in the crucible of affliction. Naomi, the lifer, brokenhearted, bowed down by grief, fearing she has lost the most precious thing in all the universe, God's hesed toward her, his unfailing, inexhaustible, never-ending love, and she doesn't understand why. Ruth, the convert, with her heart taken a hold of by God's resurrection power. There they are, hope and despair, journeying together. What they believe will show up in how they live their lives. Down the road lies Bethlehem, where nobody has an inkling of what's headed their way. Just two destitute Elimelech widows with their broken down lives and nothing to offer, just a drain on the resources of the community. But by the time the story is over, all of Bethlehem, from the field hands to the city elders, will feel the impact of their presence. God's hesed will reach Naomi through the selfless and relentless commitment of Ruth to fight for her against all odds. And she will be joined in this heroic effort by the one we've all been waiting for to show up the handsome man. And he is introduced in verse 1 of chapter 2. Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side from the clan of Elimelech, a man of standing whose name was Boaz. The narrator gives us this bit of information before his actual entrance in order to set up the story that's coming. And there's a word that we have to catch here. Last week I told you that the book of Ruth has two words and three laws that you have to understand in order to get the story. Actually, it has three words and three laws, and this is the second of the two words. You remember the first one, don't you? 
Hesed, that's right. That beautiful Hebrew word, the steadfast love of the Lord that never ceases. We talked about that one last week, and it will show up again this week. The second word we need to understand is right here in verse 1. The Bible translates it as a man of standing. It's Boaz. The Hebrew word behind this is the word hayil, and it's another one of those power words in the Old Testament. It indicates, first of all, that Boaz is a man of valor. He is a courageous man. Maybe he was once a warrior. The genealogy at the end of the book reminds us that Boaz's grandfather was Nashon, and Nashon was the commanding general of the armies of Judah during the time of Joshua. Maybe Boaz has battle experience. Maybe he fought in the Moabite war. Maybe he holds a silver star or a medal of honor. But in addition to valor, the term Hayil also identifies Boaz as a man of wealth, of stature, of privilege, and of power. Now, these are characteristics that are not much valued by some vocal critics in our society today who seem to want to cancel everybody who doesn't agree with them. Wealth and privilege and power are said to be sins that have to be repudiated, unless it's their power, of course. But the Bible never indicates privilege and power to be bad things. It only asks us, what will you do with them if you have them? If you have privilege and power, will you use them in service of the kingdom? Or will you use them selfishly? to oppose or to oppress those beneath you on the power hierarchy. Here's what the narrator wants us to know from the outset about Boaz. Not that he's a romantic white knight on a horse riding in to the scene to rescue a damsel in distress, but that he is a man of high moral character. He is courageous and influential. He will act on principle. He's an honorable man. His heart is open to wisdom, and so he is aptly named. Boaz, although not a common name, most likely means strength or strong. We tuck this information away because the narrator has told us this about Boaz ahead of time. But from Ruth's perspective, she's clueless. By the time Ruth and Naomi arrive in Bethlehem, they have five strikes against them. First of all, they are female in a patriarchal culture. Second, they are widows without sons, publicly identified as such by the clothing that's prescribed for them to wear. So they are vulnerable to abuse and they are without protection because they don't have a man. And by the way, they also have no legal protection because they have no standing. Women had no standing in any court of the day. Soon everybody knows their story, so of course they know that Ruth has also failed to conceive. Third, Ruth is an undocumented alien, a foreigner coming across the border into Israel. This woman, whose name means friend, you remember, is alone and friendless in a strange land. She knows only Naomi, who is engulfed in grief and hopelessness. 
So Ruth has three F's in her grade book already. She's female, she's infertile, and she's foreign. Imagine how that would feel. Strike number four is poverty. They are both destitute. They are members of three of the four most vulnerable segments of society in that day, the widows, the orphans, the poor, and the aliens. These were the people who existed on the margins. And you know that the Bible has a lot to say about these classes of people uh, and how much they matter to God. We'll just look at, at, at a couple of the more than dozens of verses that advocate for these people. The 10th chapter of Deuteronomy, for example, this is what it says. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God to walk in his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. And then it says this, For the Lord your God is a God of gods and a Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the alien, giving them food and clothing. And you are to love those who are aliens, for you yourselves were aliens in Egypt. Why do you suppose God is so concerned about widows and orphans and aliens and poor people anyway? Why? is because life is pretty doggone hard for those people. That's why. Because God's intention is for people to flourish. But human fallenness and selfishness and the diabolical power that opposes God in this world blocks his intention. And it arouses his compassion when people suffer, especially those who are on the very margins of society. Now, who does it say here defends the cause of the fatherless and the widows and the orphans? Who does that? Who does that? It says God does that, right? How does God do that? How does God show love to aliens and give them food and clothing? It's through the actions of his people. That's right. It says it right there. It says, you, when you get into that land that the Lord your God is giving you, you are to love the aliens and the foreigners and the strangers that come in among you. You are to do that. Now, do you think on the whole, God's people were good at doing this? Do you think they were, you know, had a good track record of loving foreigners and, and widows? They did not. No. Of course, there were always some along the way who chose to live as if God were king and who took him seriously when he said, love the widows and the aliens, but not on the whole. And it was primarily on account of their failure in this regard that God allowed his people to go into captivity. And by the way, do you think God's heart has changed on any of this? Do you think? Uh, probably not. You know, do you think he's still concerned about foreigners who are arriving in mass on our southern border in this country? Do you think he's concerned about that? I think he probably is. Do you think he still expects his people to act in behalf of those people? Well, that's a harder question, isn't it? Because it's very complicated and it's fraught with political peril. But I think it's something worth thinking about. 
So our two heroines are female, widowed, destitute, and Ruth is foreign, four strikes, but there's a fifth strike against them, and it's the most urgent. They are hungry. They have nothing to eat. Naomi is pretty much overcome by depression, so despite her own grief and insecurities, Ruth comes up with a plan. She has not forgotten her impassioned vow to take care of her mother-in-law, and she wastes no time putting it into practice. She decides to glean. Ruth, the Moabitess, said to Naomi, let me go to the field and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Gleaning was Israel's welfare system, you know that. A way for the poor, the widows, the orphans, and the aliens to sustain themselves by scavenging leftover grain from the harvest fields. This is the second law that we need to understand how it works if we're going to get the story. Last week, remember, we thought about liberate marriage, which provided protection for a family suffering the loss of a husband so that the dead man's inheritance might stay in his family and be passed on to the next generation, even if he didn't have sons. We discovered that the law of liberate marriage didn't apply to Naomi or to Ruth because there were no sons and no more were coming. Gleaning was another law God set up to make sure that the marginalized classes had a way to eat. It was based on God's instruction to his people in Leviticus chapter 19 and in Deuteronomy 24. In Leviticus, God says, When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the alien. I am the Lord. In other words, do this. I'm telling it to you. You get an idea of how important this was to God uh, because you see it comes in, the, in, the, in Leviticus 19 right where God is reiterating some of his Ten Commandment laws. Do not lie, do not steal, and don't harvest to the edge of your fields. In Deuteronomy, he says, when you are harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheaf, that's a bundle of cut grain, do not go back and get it. Leave it for the alien, the fatherless, and the widow. Why? Why do you leave it there? So the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. In other words, by living like this, God will pour his blessing out on you. See? In other words, God wants to partner with his people to bring wholeness to the world. He says, don't beat your olive trees a second time or go over your grapevines a second time. Leave it for the widows and the aliens. And then he says, remember that you were slaves in Egypt. That's why I command you to do this. In other words, if you know how it feels to be poor, or fatherless, or a widow, or in a strange land that's not your own. If you know how that feels, then you will know why I ask you to show compassion on those who find themselves in difficult circumstances. Maybe, sometimes God lets us go through difficult circumstances so that we can develop compassion for people who are going through difficult circumstances. He's, now, there's something interesting about the way God sets up this gleaning thing. 
He says to leave a margin along the border of your field. Notice there how much margin he says to leave. Is it a 10-cubit margin? Or is it a 15-cubit cubit, uh, 15 cubit margin? How much? How wide a swath does he want you to leave along the fence? Well, it doesn't say. There's no specification. So let's say that you had a barley field ready for harvest. How will you know how much to leave along the edges? And how careful would you require your, harvests, your harvesters to be to get every last shock of grain before the gleaners were allowed on your property? There's no rule. So how would you know that you're in compliance? Now to understand gleaning, it's helpful to understand how grain was harvested in the first place. And it was done in a two-step process. In the days of Naomi, wealthy landowners would hire male harvesters who would move through the field and cut down the strikes of standing grain with a scythe. Then a second wave uh, of women would follow behind the harvesters and they would gather up the cut stalks into sheaves to be carted off to the threshing floor. After the second wave was finished, the bundlers, gleaners would be allowed to, into the field to gather up whatever scraps remained. So Ruth says, let me go and glean. Notice what Naomi doesn't say. She does not say, oh yes, gleaning. Why didn't I think of that? That would be wonderful. That's a fine idea. Bless you, my daughter, for remembering about gleaning. Please go glean. She doesn't. Why not? Because in, a, in an Eastern shame-honor culture, gleaning was a source of shame. If you went to glean, it meant you were parading your poverty in front of everybody. They would all know how poor you were. And in Bethlehem, Naomi had once been somebody. If you had to resort to gleaning, you had become one of the lowest of the low. And Ruth knows this. Ruth will openly admit it later in the conversation with Boaz that she is less than even his servant girls. Even the female slaves are higher on the ladder than she is. She knows that. So when she tells Naomi of her plan, it's like the last shred of dignity is finally torn away. Not only that, but gleaning was, was less than subsistence living. You think about people who make, up, uh, who make a living, like the story this morning, by collecting aluminum cans, okay? Or people who find their next meal by scavenging in dumpsters. That's gleaning. Most of the time, gleaners would bring home barely enough for one night's meal. Plus, it was dangerous if you were a girl. Competition among gleaners could be fierce. Bethlehem is only just recovering from years of famine. This is the first good harvest they've had in years. Lots of people are hungry. Young, female, and foreign, wearing the garb of a widow. Ruth is an easy target for the greedy gleaners who might choose to seize anything that she has collected. She's also a target for the hired laborers who might view her as an easy sexual mark. If you have a kind of romanticized image of a dainty, fair-headed maiden gathering stocks of golden grain, you need to lose that. It was long, hard, hot 
sweaty work. But Ruth will roll up her sleeves and she will glean until her hands are raw because, as Carolyn James puts it, she is in battle mode for Naomi. And here is where God enters the story. Right there in verse 3, it says, As it turned out, she found herself working in a field belonging to Boaz. That little phrase, as it turned out, it's a way of saying it was a God thing. And you know what that means, don't you, when somebody says that? If we fail to see God at work here behind the scenes in this story, we've missed the real hero. Unseen, and yet God has guided the feet of his new daughter to this very field. Of course, Ruth doesn't have a clue who Boaz is, but God does. And it's not by chance that Ruth ends up in this particular field. God is at work assembling his team of kingdom heroes so that his purpose can be accomplished, so that his people can flourish. So Ruth goes to work, and she labors the whole morning. Then another God thing happens, verse 7. Just then Boaz arrived from Bethlehem to greet the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they called back. These are the first words out of the mouth of Boaz, and what good words they are. Now we learn that he's not only a, a hail, but that he lives his life with a sense that God is always present, even among ordinary tasks like farm work and harvests. He's quick to bless. And you can imagine how good this must have sounded to Ruth, the sense of relief that she experienced. She had no idea who the owner of this field is, but whoever it is, she knows he will represent power. And that could be a threat. How will this man use it? Will he be a Governor Cuomo kind of man, ready to exploit those beneath him? Maybe when she hears his, great, his greeting, she thinks, so this is what it's like to live in a land called Israel, where the people who hold the power and the privilege are people of integrity, and where landowners act as if God is right there with them. And then Boaz notices a stranger in his field, a gleaner that he has not seen before. Whose young woman is that? He asks his foreman. Notice how the foreman responds. He doesn't even use her name. She is the Moabitess, the Moabitess, who came back from Moab with Naomi. She's just that foreigner. She's just that undesirable. But the real shocker is what he says next. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. Now scholars have traditionally understood this to mean that Ruth was simply asking permission to glean in the field, that she was being deferential and polite and humble, especially because she is a woman. It was not. Permission to glean was not required. It would be as, like asking a traffic policeman if, it was, if you could have permission to walk down a public sidewalk. Boaz permits gleaners in his field. They don't need to ask. But Ruth doesn't want to take home mere scraps to her mother-in-law. So she makes a bold, audacious proposal to the foreman. She says, 
Let me glean behind the harvesters. Instead of scavenging snippets of grain that have been trampled down, she wants to go where the fresh stalks lie, where the women are tying them into bundles. This is totally unheard of. The foreman has no authority to grant such a request. But now, Boaz has come. Now, Boaz will decide. Boaz is an honorable man who permits gleaners in the field, and he complies with Mosaic law. But Ruth lives on the hungry side of that law, and from her her perspective, it looks a lot different. What she proposes is a radical reinterpretation of that law that goes to the very heart of why God gave it to his people in the first place. This brazen request creates a healthy conflict for Boaz, and it should. What will he do? Out onto the field he comes, turning his thoughts over in his mind as he marches, right up to where Ruth is gathering. Will he take this as an affront, as an assault, as as an insult? As he approaches, she rises, and I can almost see her there in my mind's eye, tired and bedraggled, yet determined. Even the foreman said she had been working all morning with hardly even stopping. Rivlets of sweat streak her face, and she's covered with dust and bits of barley that are clinging to her clothes. A wisp of hair hangs down from under her shawl. And what a contrast between these two here. As one scholar has written, her fullness is the counterpart of, his fullness is the counterpart of her emptiness. There they stand facing each other, Boaz powerful, Ruth powerless and vulnerable. He has wealth and resources. Ruth battles poverty and hunger. His maleness comes with automatic advantages. Her femaleness puts her at risk. Unlike unlike Ruth and Naomi who derive their significance from the men in their lives, Boaz stands tall on his own. In the ancient world, he holds all the cards, and Ruth's hand is empty. He is a man of standing in Israel, a hail. The foreman has just reminded us she is an alien, a Moabitess. And yet she has just challenged him to move beyond the letter of his Jewish law to fulfill its spirit. The letter of the law says, let them glean. The spirit says, feed them. Let them eat. And this is the kind of thing that the men of standing in the town would discuss in the city gates. That's what they would kind of talk about, you know. How much margin do we leave on the edges of our field this year? Well, I don't know. How many hungry people are there likely to be? Oh, you know, this is the, the first good year we've had in years. If we don't pull a profit this year, we are liable to go under. Well, so how much are you going to leave, huh? And in the aftermath of a prolonged famine, the struggle would have been especially difficult, even in Boaz's mind. And now here is this feisty little foreign woman challenging his practice, challenging how he keeps the Mosaic law. I mean, this is way above her pay grade. He has every reason to refuse. If he grants her request, he'll be opening the floodgates to who knows what. What will he say? So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. 
Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with my servant girls. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the girls. I have told the men not to touch you. And whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. Wow. Usually it's the women who fill the water jars. Now she, a woman, is going to drink from jars that men have filled. Instead of taking offense, Boaz, Boaz's response is as radical as her request. He listens to her. That's unheard of. And then this powerhouse of a man, this native-born Israelite who cut his teeth on Mosaic law, throws his power and his privilege behind her request. He joins forces with her in her fight for Naomi's well-being. Question, why in the world would Boaz do that? The traditional answer is, of course, he is smitten. He has locked eyes with this cute young lady gathering grain in his field, and his heart has skipped a beat. Nothing could be further from the truth. Boaz is Hail, remember, which also indicates he is happily married with sons and grandsons of his own. Boaz is not on the prowl for romance and certainly not from a barren woman. He is Hail, a man of character. He is also quite a bit older. Jewish tradition has it that Boaz turned 80 on the day he married Ruth. Probably he was even older than that, if the genealogies are going to make sense. So there's a, there they are, there's 50, maybe 60 years between them as they stand there in the field and face one another. Not that older people are immune to romance. That's not what I'm trying to insinuate here. And it may even be that Ruth was not very cute. Her name, Ruth, means friend, which is a descriptor of an inner quality. Her sister's name is Orpah, which means fawn. And in Middle Eastern cultures, that was a word sometimes used to describe a cute girl. In our culture, if a girl is cute, we used to say that she was a fox or that she's a chick. But Middle, Eastern, Middle Easterners would say, oh, she's a fawn. She's a fawn. That's how Solomon described his bride in Song of Solomon. So of the two, Orpah is probably the looker, and she's gone home already. And by the way, since we're doing names for a moment, you know that many girls have been named Ruth over the years after the biblical character in this story. Um, but did you know that there's a very famous American woman who was named after Orpah? You know that? Yeah. Her, it's uh, it's Oprah, Oprah. Her mother got the spelling of it wrong on the birth certificate. So instead of Orpah, she ended up as Oprah. She was named after the pretty one who went home to Moab. That's just a tidbit of information. But back to Boaz, he tells us exactly why he joins forces with Ruth. He says, I've been told about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband how you left your father and mother and your homeland and you came to live with a people you didn't know before. I know about your sacrifice. Wait a minute, he does? Who's been talking? Not Ruth. It must be Naomi. 
the same Naomi who arrived in Bethlehem and people were so surprised at how beaten down and bad she looked that they covered their mouths and they say, oh, can this be Naomi, the, the same Naomi that we used to know? And Naomi had said, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara because God has made my life very bitter. I went out of here full and I've come back empty. The very same woman who uttered those words of despair with Ruth standing right beside her. Ruth, who had just basically given up her whole life for her, pledged her whole life for her, and she says, I've come back empty. I have nothing. But she has also been telling people about this daughter-in-law of hers who made a vow to her to take care of her and provide for her as if she were her own son as if she were a son and not a daughter-in-law. And word gets around because Bethlehem's not a very big town. Boaz has heard and he stands back in awe of what this girl has undertaken and he says, I will join with you in your fight to see that Naomi will flourish. I will work with you. And there is one other reason why he grants her request. The narrator wants us to get this. His foreman has made sure that Boaz and the reader understands the stranger in his field was a foreigner. Remember, she is that Moabite woman. You can almost hear the disdain in his words, but Boaz hadn't heard any disdain because he has a heart for the aliens and the undocumented in, Im, immigrants. You know why? Check the genealogies. Because Boaz's mother was Rahab, the Canaanite woman of Jericho, a foreigner and an outcast. And so he knows how it feels. God says, leave some for the alien. Remember, you were slaves in Egypt. That's why I command you to do this. Boaz says, I remember. My own mother was an alien in this land. I know how it feels. And then he prays for her right there in the field. He says, may the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. <laughs> Boaz has no blooming clue at this point that God will answer his very prayer in the days to come using Boaz. She not only has... Boaz then, he issues a series of executive orders, okay? She not only has permission to venture into territory absolutely off limits to the gleaners, but the harvesters are not to give her any hassle whatsoever. She is to be given access to food and water normally reserved for his hired workers, and at mealtime, he invites her to join his workers for a lunch of roasted grain, a huge lunch. It's like all the distance between them has vanished now that he has become her ally in this fight. He further tells his workers to pull out some extra stocks as they're cutting and leave them in her path so that she can get even more. In fact, when she goes home that night, she will carry with her an astonishing 29 pounds of winnowed grain, which is more than 20 times the daily rate of pay for the professional harvesters. A harvester normally took home about a pound and a half. 
Verse 23 tells us that Ruth gleaned in Boaz's fields for nearly eight weeks, the whole time of the barley harvest, which has just started, and then the whole wheat harvest, which follows. Because of her hardworking, gutsy attitude and the open-mindedness of Boaz, if they are careful, Ruth and Naomi will eat for the entire year to come. And Boaz goes to bed a happy man. Though it'll cost him, it will, but he knows he has done what the spirit of the law requires. And that's how kingdom people live their lives, isn't it? Isn't it? I mean, he want, God wants kingdom people to join with him in the spirit of what he's trying to do. He's not interested in just compliance. He wants his people to, to have hearts open to what he wants to move from the letter to what it's really all about in the first place. Why didn't God uh, specify how many cubits to be, were to be left on the, on the borders of the fields? Because the law wasn't about gleaning. The law was about generos generosity and living in a kind of way that everybody can flourish. That's what it was all about. And so Boaz sleeps the sleep of a contented man, knowing he has done his duty Oh, Boaz, you don't know the half of it yet. Meanwhile, Ruth heads home from her first day in the fields. Naomi has spent an anxious day worrying about her daughter-in-law and the risk that she has taken. Will she come home okay? Has she been abused at the hand of some unscrupulous laborer? Will she be discouraged? It's late in the day. Naomi is, is hungry. She's fretful. When at last she hears Ruth's footfalls outside, it's with a huge sense of relief. But relief morphs to astonishment as Ruth opens her shawl and displays her haul. Not only that, she pulls out the leftovers from lunch, and it must smell mighty good to Naomi, who probably hasn't eaten all day. Carolyn James says it was the first fast food fast food meal ever mentioned in scripture. Questions begin tumbling out of her. Where did you glean today? Where did you work? And with her eyes wide with wonder, she says, blessed is that man who took notice of you. And Ruth tells the story without revealing the name of the man in whose field she worked until the very end. Even so, Naomi is feeling a stirring deep within her soul as if she is about to experience a God moment. She is beside herself with anticipation. Who could it be? The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz, Ruth says. Naomi's hand rises to cover her mouth. Her eyes widen even more and fill with tears. She can't speak. She is overcome for the first time in a very, very long time with a sense of God's goodness. Minutes passed, and at last she finds her voice, and what she says is wonderful. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her, to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. And you know what wonderful Hebrew power word lurks behind that word kindness, don't you? It's the word hesed. 
He has not stopped showing his loving kindness, his hesed. It's just too good to be true. After such a long, dark night of the soul, after thinking that she had lost it, but in Ruth's tired but satisfied eyes and on the table heaped with fresh grain, Naomi has the tokens of her answer. The question is, what does Naomi actually mean here? Does she mean that Boaz has not stopped showing his hesed? That's what it seems like in the NIV, which is on the screen here. The Lord bless him, Boaz. He has not stopped showing his kindness. Or does she mean God has not stopped showing his hesed? As the RSV translates it, Then Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, Blessed be he by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. And the underlying Hebrew here is ambiguous, and some scholars think it's deliberately so, in which case it means both of them. God is showing his hesed to Naomi and her dead husband and her dead sons, and he is showing it to her through the actions of Boaz, because that's how God chooses to work, isn't it? He uses his kingdom people to accomplish his goodness in the world. He uses his Boaz people and his Ruth people working together to care for the widows and the aliens. And he still does it even today. But what really matters here is that Naomi has just experienced a resurrection on this day, her bitter question about God has been answered. He has not withdrawn his hesed. She is still in his love, regardless of the disasters that have befallen her. God still cares for her, and he still has kingdom work for her left to accomplish, critical work. Of course, it's not as though Naomi's grief is all simply evaporated, and now things are all rosy again. She still suffers and she still grieves. She will grieve the losses of the men in her life until the day she dies. But now she knows God has not abandoned her and that makes all the difference. From this moment on, Naomi is a changed person. She has God's mighty resurrection power at work within her. And God has used Ruth and Boaz in the working of that miracle. God's preferred method of saving lost people is to work through us. His resurrection power is at work through powerless people to bring dead souls to life. He always works that way. That mighty power working in her will bear fruit in about eight weeks. But wait, the story's not over. Now it's Ruth's turn to be totally gobsmacked by what Naomi tells her, a statement she could never have anticipated in a hundred years. And we'll find out what that is in two weeks.